Welcome to Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. My name is Father Yuri Gladio, and I'm an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey holds a doctorate in liturgical theology and is the co-director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto. Every three weeks, Father Jeffrey and I release an hour-long episode regarding an aspect of Orthodox life. However, only patrons get access to the last half hour of our discussion. If you'd like to hear the rest of this conversation, you can head over to pryingpriest.com support. But for now, enjoy the first half of this double feature. And here we are doing another double feature, Father Jeffrey, on marriage, on marriage. Um, particularly what is marriage. There's a lot of uh, talk about marriage uh, nowadays. Well, I can think of at least one person who wouldn't forgive me if I didn't have anything positive to say about marriage. <laughs> you may be in a similar situation, Father Yuri. <laughs> uh, yes, indeed, indeed. Um, yes, yeah, so so marriage, what is marriage? I've, wonderful, it's wonderful, Father Yuri. <laughs> it, 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 uh, it's amazing. I have, so the reason I picked this topic, as so for our listeners that don't know, I just pick topics that I want to talk about and ask about, and Father Jeffrey has to respond. Um, he has no say. I pick the topic and he gives all, me all the answers. He solves all my problems for me. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So in this episode, I'm going to be talking about all of my marriage problems, Father Jeffrey. <laughs> Welcome to Marriage Counseling 101. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So uh, moving to more seriousness here. Um, I, I, I have a couple of questions about marriage. I think that there's a lot of confusion about marriage and kind of romantic relationships and, and things like that. And what I wanted to do today is maybe go to at the start, maybe go back in history to see how maybe the church related with marriage and things like that. Father Jeffrey, I was listening to a podcast. I just have to say this. I was listening to a podcast recently where the podcast host claimed that the um, offhand that the Roman Catholic Church invented monogamy in the fourth century. Mm hmm. So, I don't know. It's... Uh, as far back as that, huh? Far back as that. <laughs> so, uh, let's go back in the history a little bit here. So, marriage. So, you know, my mind goes back to the New Testament, right? The, the earliest writings that we still have historically from the earliest Christian movement. And there are a couple of moments in which the writers of the New Testament talk about marriage. You know, I'm thinking about in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul is sort of, uh, the Apostle Paul is, is talking about the way that all the different members of the household should be relating to each other in Christian love, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what's interesting there is, what's interesting in the New Testament is there's not a detailed theology of laying the foundations of what a marriage is, Right there's there's um, the writers come to their writing with an assumption that people already know what marriage is and are doing it, and here are just some things you need to have in your marriage if it's going to be a good holy Christian marriage, right? right. So I guess m my opening question is: It seems that from the earliest times, the Christian movement was happy enough to accept the already established. Um, 
practices of marriage that existed in the world around it, whether it be the Jewish practices of marriage that the Christians kind of inherited from from the from the the Jewish tradition, but also the Roman traditions of of marriage. I guess that's kind of the, my first question is, is that right that the church just kind of accepted that or did the church sort of come up with its own definition of marriage, I guess? No, I think it's a really good way of thinking about it. I, marriage really comes into the early Christian uh, church as a given, right? There's a givenness to it. And and although it's not absolutely universal, I'm sure that you could find exceptions that, that uh, prove the rule, as it were. But uh, across every human society, there's been something along the lines of what we would call marriage. Now, if you start to examine the different forms and the different policies and legislation and practices around marriage, it, you might actually find that your definition got so stretched that it'd be very difficult to even pin down what marriage is. But I think we can kind of hold in our mind an idea that, you know, marriage is has been everywhere, certainly going back, you know, tens of thousands of years in human history. And so it is a given that is received, you know, by the church. Uh, you know, and you, you quite rightly point out, I mean, in terms of what the early church is going to receive, it receives both a kind of Jewish inheritance from the old covenant, which has a variety of practice even within that, although it was being sharpened by the time of, of the first century and, you know, the kind of late second temple Judaism. But also there's a real inheritance from Roman practice. And we're, you know, all about um, kind of bashing what the Roman uh, hegemony in the Middle East, you know, what, what awful things it brought, um, you know, but marriage would possibly be one of those areas where there were some good things. There was a kind of free and open contract that both men and women entered into, you know, so I'm, I'm sort of reminded a little bit of Monty Python, the life of Brian here, where, you know, the, the various groups who are trying to overthrow the Romans are saying all the awful things the Romans did, but then they keep mentioning, well, but then there's the roads and then there's healthcare and then there's, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. the feeding the poor and, and everything. So we're going to have to throw marriage in there too. That, that the Romans brought some aspect of a contractual you know, nature and a free and open kind of entering into that contract, uh, you know, to marriage. So, but in any case, you're right that the Christian, early Christians are not about setting to define or shape what marriage is. They accept it as a given. Now, what's going to be interesting to, to kind of trace is what what is done with that, both, as you say, in some of the early writings of the church, in the letters of Paul, we talk about Ephesians, or even in the Gospels, where uh, Jesus has some things to say about marriage that kind of reverse a lot of the what had become normal in kind of old covenant Jewish practice and so forth, where there were a lot of exceptions that, that had entered into for very kind of obvious human and sociological needs. But I say, even by you know, most Jewish standards, those were being kind of looked at. It was a big debate in early uh, or in, in late Second Temple uh, Judaism. The various rabbinic debates around divorce and leveret marriage and things like that are, are taking place. And Jesus kind of just takes part in that discussion. So it's a given, but it's also an issue. It's a, it's something that's accepted that sociologically and culturally this exists. We're going to have to deal with it. But the, the kind of terms of how to deal with it are not entirely settled. So early Christians are entering into a kind of pre-existing discussion, taking things on and challenging them and overturning them in, in, in different and clever ways. Yeah. So one place that my mind goes, you know, we're a, a podcast about liturgical worship. 
one place that my mind goes is maybe like a service of marriage and looking at the earliest the earliest sources that we have for any kind of service of marriage because you know again in the new testament it really seems and it, again it seems that there is just sort of a given about marriage right like yeah you want to get married get married but like what's the connection with the church right there do people just kind of go get married like you know at city hall and the church just sort of says yeah you're i guess you're married i guess um or or was there kind of always a practice of you know maybe it's yeah get married in the way that you do in that culture like the civil marriage or whatever it might be but then you kind of come to the church and and get blessed or things like that um yeah i'm just kind of wondering a little bit about the origin of maybe the ceremony of marriage within the christian context yeah well so there isn't one i'm not in the earliest period that's how given marriage is right so however you contracted it right now because we're talking largely about christianity spreading you know, within the Greco-Roman Empire, you know, there were Roman laws around marriage, which if, unless you wanted an illicit marriage, you would adhere to. So that would be going to the equivalent of, you know, first, second century city hall and, you know, signing a contract, doing all the things that, that you would expect. There would be an exchange of rings. There would be, you know, the contractual signing and, and so forth, uh, the agreement to enter into this bond uh, to pledge you know, all of the things that, that people would do. So that's all happening. It's happening for anybody. And when Christians do it, the question then becomes, well, what then do we do with this? And so the, the givenness is the marriage arrives at the doors of the church, right? At the doors of the assembly, the worshiping covenant family of God. What, what, what happens to marriage when it gets there? And the first, you know, reflection on this and the main and I think fundamental you know, idea is that what arrives at that church in this kind of very human thing called marriage, as I say, we don't say as Christians that non-Christians aren't married, right? That, that we, we agree that there is a legal construct, a sociological uh, thing, category called marriage, and, and that arrives at the doors of the church. What is then done with it? Well, it's its incorporation into the assembly, that, that matters. And specifically, what kind of constitutes that assembly is the Eucharist, right? And so the re earliest kind of reflection on this is going to be about what happens when the couple who have entered into matrimony through civil society, through a civil contract, come to church and receive communion together. And so the first uh, re references to this are about the way that that union, uh, that, that ordinary human secular, if you will, union of marriage is taken into the life of the church. And that's where some of the things that we get, uh, you know, in St. Paul in Ephesians chapter five, as you mentioned, you know, come into play, right? He's not saying, you know, come and get married at church and this is what happens in a marriage. He's saying those who are married, when they come to church, this is how, this is the next kind of level to which it's projected. Uh, this becomes a sign in and through the Eucharist of the way that communion between God and Israel, Christ and his bride, the church, uh, is effected so that, that the husband and the wife become icons, uh, martyrs, right? Uh, the, the kind of symbolism of witness and so forth for the love, the covenant love between God and Israel, between Christ, the bridegroom and the church, the bride. And so 
you can imagine, I mean, in, in every kind of sacramental act, every holy mystery of the church, we take ordinary things and we project them into the life of the age to come, into that eschatological reality of the kingdom. And there they take on a new and permanent and ultimate meaning, right? If you think about the water of baptism and even the symbolism of plunging into water, I mean, many of us have had baths, right? You know, so we, we do this act. It's an ordinary human thing. And you wouldn't call it baptism, you know, whenever anybody goes and plunges themselves three times into a, a pool. But we take what is an ordinary human act of, of cleansing, of, of renewal, and that is projected into the kingdom in the sacrament or the holy mystery of baptism, and it becomes something of the age to come, something of the end of the kingdom. Uh, and, and similarly, we take ordinary food, bread and wine, the kind of staple things of, of creation that, that human beings have, have, have come. And we, we don't say that there's no bread or wine outside the church. We say that that's a given. We take the givenness of bread and wine and we project it into the kingdom in the Holy Eucharist. And in that great prayer of thanksgiving, in that descent of the Holy Spirit, that communion between God and Israel, Christ and his bride, that, that bread and wine becomes a tangible concrete sign of, of that communion and so on and so forth in the oil and all the different things we bring to different sacraments. So the, the question to ask is, what is the stuff that we bring in, in marriage? And that is the actual contract, the contract that is ordinary. It's, it's, it's possibly multiform depending on time and history. And you mentioned things like, well, you know, does it depend on romance? Does it depend on, you know, uh, arranged marriages? Yes, it can. You know, it can take all these different forms, but whatever it is, it's an ordinary human thing brought into church. And when it's united with that worshiping assembly, joined together with God in the age to come, then it is projected into that kingdom. And so that the marriage contract becomes something altogether, you know, more permanent and, and fundamental, something of the new creation through that service. Now, the tricky thing with marriage is we don't give it a different word, right? I mentioned taking a bath and baptism or having a meal and the Eucharist. You know, we have different words for these acts. The problem we have in dissociating the human sociological, cultural, legal framework of marriage from Christian marriage is we call them both marriages. So if we had a different word for it, it would help us to see mm -hmm. that transformation mm -hmm. that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. It would also help us with a lot of the ethical, moral, canonical questions, you know, we get to, because it's a really, really tricky thing. Because what are we talking about? Are we talking about marriage just in a human legal sense when we're talking about marriage? Or are we talking about this marriage, which has taken on the character of Christ and his church, as St. Paul talks about, uh, mm -hmm. which in that sense is something altogether different. It's not just you know, until the contract is dissolved, it's unto ages of ages. And so there's all kinds of problems of not having a different word for this. So I think as we go forward in this podcast, we can dissociate those two things. And certainly as we get to ethical, moral, canonical issues, we're going to have to say, what are we actually talking about here? Because, you know, you and I as presbyters in the Orthodox Church, we look out into the world, we see lots of marriages. We, none of us are saying, well, look over there, those people were not you know, betrothed and crowned in an Orthodox Byzantine rite ceremony of marriage. Therefore, they're obviously just living in sin and their children are bastards. You know, we don't say that. We say they have a legally contracted marriage. That's a family that exists in our society. But we're saying something different about those who are two Orthodox Christians who can be united in the Eucharist 
in church. So you can already start to see where it's going to fall short, where that is not the reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I'm, I'm really appreciating what you're bringing to the table, Father Jeffrey. But it makes me think, you know, if I were to translate this ideal into today's practice, it almost seems like, let's say there's an Orthodox couple that wants to get married. It almost seems like they should go to City Hall, you know, a few weeks before, you know, the Orthodox wedding ceremony and just do the paperwork and get married so that they can then bring that offering of their marriage into church. Right. Yeah. Like that sort of seems like what, according to the way that you laid it out, that would seem to be more of a normal practice. Yes. And it still is the practice or it has returned to being the practice in a lot of places in, in Western Europe, in the United Kingdom, that is what happens because the, the Orthodox church there anyway, does not have the, the civil uh, responsibility for registering marriages. So let me just trace that history a little bit, because it wasn't mm-hmm. the case until the ninth or 10th century that, that the church was had taken over responsibility or some kind of delegated responsibility from the really? state to register marriages. So even think of the glories of Christian Byzantium, right? You know, under, you know, saints like Justinian and so forth and, and marvelous heaven on earth reality of, of civil society that is as close to heaven as you could possibly get. I'm obviously parodying that, but there are some, you know, orthodox visions of that, that that are taking place. Under their rule, someone like Justinian, you had to go and get the civil marriage at the court or the city hall or whatever, and then you went to church. Um, and so the, the, the what starts to happen, though, is around the time of the fourth or fifth century that the the going to church after you have the civil contract starts to take on a slightly more elaborate form. St. John Chrysostom in his homilies refers to marriage crowns. They're not universal, uh, but they start to enter into the practice. So that having got your marriage and being fully married, you would then come to church on a Sunday in the full assembly of the church, the normal you know, divine liturgy, you would receive the Eucharist together as a couple for the first time. And that starts to involve extra prayers, a blessing and crowning and so forth. But, you know, as late as like the you know, 800s, uh, patriarch, um, uh, Photius. Uh, well, first of all, yeah, in the early 800s, we have St. Theodore the Studite, who actually gives us one of the, the prayers. It's the first time we have one of these prayers written down. It's a prayer um, of uh, of kind of crowning that, that we have from what, one of his prayer books. But, you know, as late as the end of the ninth century with St. Photius the Great, Patriarch of Constantinople, he talks about marriage being an alliance for and a union for all of life. And he says it's accomplished by a blessing or by a crowning or by an agreement. So there's obviously some, you know, variety in practice by that point. But it's only in the next century, in the the early uh, 10th century, under Byzantine Emperor Leo VI, who institutes a law a novella. And interestingly, it's not just marriage, but there are two things that that were being done by the state only. And he wanted, he thought it would be more important if they were done by the church. Now, it's an interesting move. It has, you can imagine, positive reasons for doing this from a Christian perspective, but also negative ones, which we'll get into. But those two things are the adoption of a child. He says, you know, this is happening in civil society. It's it's in the courts, it's at city hall or wherever. We want the church to be the one that does this. So adoption of a child and marriage. And so from this point, even though not everyone in society in Byzantine uh, or East Roman Empire is a Christian or even an Orthodox Christian, the church 
has been is given by the emperor the responsibility for looking after adoption and marriage. And so, and he declares as part of that, that any marriage not blessed by the church will not be considered as marriage. So this is dangerous territory, in fact. So you imagine if you're a couple of Jews or Muslims or, you know, something else, even non-Orthodox Christians, the only way to get married now in, in Byzantium is to go to the Orthodox Church. You can imagine the problems <laughs> that this oh, yeah. will, will create. I mean, this is where we begin this whole, I mean, certainly in the East, there's kind of similar thing happening at different times in the West, but we'll focus on the Orthodox Church here. But this kind of secularizes the pastoral approach to marriage. Uh, you cannot really enforce much of a penitential discipline. You can hardly say to these people, well, we can only marry you if you're coming in to church and, and communing regularly. I mean, they might not even be Christians of any kind, right? Uh, and this is where you start to get, well, if the church is taking over marriage from the state, what is it also taking over? The dissolution of marriage. And so this is where divorce being blessed, <laughs> I'm putting scare quotes yeah, around that yeah. word, um, blessed by the church begins, you know, and, and this whole idea, well, we can allow a second, a third marriage, but never a fourth and, and that sort of thing. So, but to me, going back to that original theology of marriage, the biggest price of all is that this marriage therefore has to be separated from the Eucharist, right? So you get for the first time, a separate marriage service that takes its form, its shape from, from the Eucharistic uh, divine liturgy, because you'll notice that the, it fits right back in. If you take all the different parts, it, it, it models perfectly what, what uh, the overall structure uh, of the Eucharist is like other services, you know, do that we've taken out like baptism and, and so forth. But you obviously can't celebrate a marriage in the context of the divine liturgy where there's no guarantee that the people are faithful in their orthodoxy or indeed orthodox at all or indeed Christian at all, right? Now, what will continue for some time, because St. Simeon of Thessalonica, early uh, 15th century, he refers to this, that if if they are still two orthodox Christians coming to, to do this marriage, the church will give pre-sanctified gifts of communion. But otherwise, it's this just a common cup that's given. So at that point where the mm. Eucharist was celebrated to unite this couple in this eternal union, well, for St. Simeon in Thessalonica, as late as the 15th century, that's still pre-sanctified gifts. So it's, there's this memory that this is supposed to be you know, a Eucharistic service, but otherwise it's just the common cup that's given. So you can now see that we've gone a long way you know, in a thousand years by the time I get to St. Simeon and, and beyond from where that early church was thinking about Marriage is a thing. It's already out there in the world. So today, yes, there are places where the state still has um, kind of delegated to the church the opportunity to register marriages. We have that, you know, in Ontario here uh, and in most of, of Canada. In fact, Ontario retains the ability even to marry people without a marriage license in the church. If you read the bans, uh, which is the publishing of, of the announcement of the marriage within the Eucharistic service over three, three Sundays uh, before the marriage, you don't even need to go and pay for a marriage license. But otherwise, you go and get your license. It's not actually a marriage until it's taken to the church. And the, and the, the one who is a delegate of the, in our case, the, the, the province of Ontario can register that marriage. But it still comes a little bit with a, a compromise with a cost. So say so you go to places like Western Europe, 
France or the UK, you'll find that if you go to get married in the Orthodox Church, they'll say, okay, go and get your civil marriage. And it's usually the day before or whatever. And you do that at City Hall and you come arrived as married in the eyes of the law of the world. And that's then just taken into the church, which is a lot closer to the original model. Now that said, our service that we have, which has two parts, betrothal and crowning, the betrothal part is the legal contract. Right. And so you'll notice that's where the rings are given. That's where kind of promises, pledges are made, not in the form of vows like in the Western church, but they're, they're kind of turned into prayers. But that, that was the part that was the Roman civil legal ceremony. And properly speaking, if you read the rubrics carefully, that's not celebrated in the church. It's celebrated either in the narthex or at the very kind of edge of where the narthex enters into the nave, right? So it's that indicates kind of symbolically, liturgically, that that is the thing happening in the world. And then, you know, the presbyter will lead the couple, having been betrothed, into the center of the church where then the crowning takes place. So the symbolism is all still there. And it very much is in keeping with, you know, what St. John Chrysostom is talking about in the fourth century, that that's happened. Now we take this givenness of marriage and we brought it in into the church. Technically speaking, it really, in places where that marriage has already taken place, the civil ceremony, you don't need to do the betrothal, right? Really, the rings should have been, uh, well, they would have been uh, exchanged and given at the, the civil ceremony, and then you just do the crowning. But, you know, that probably is not what happens. It probably is just done as one, you know, complete ceremony. But mm-hmm. but that's where all these different bits come from. It's a complicated, you know, history, and, and really a lot of it is owed to, you know, the 10th century church taking over the civil responsibility for things. And that really complicates all of our thinking about this mm-hmm. and, and kind of undermines how we think of taking something that's ordinary and making it uh, something of the kingdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really appreciate everything you're putting down. We have about five minutes left in this public episode, the, the first half of our discussion. I, I think in the last half, we're going to talk a bit of, uh, more about kind of specific cases, right? Uh, how does it work? You know, maybe some weddings that the Orthodox Church would not um, choose to, to bless, right? Things like uh, um, you have a, an Orthodox person wants to marry somebody who's not even a Christian, right? How does that work, bringing it into the church? But, you know, those questions are really, are really um, would be a lot simpler to deal with if the church was not the power that provided people with, like, the marriage, Mm-hmm. Right. Like it seems that it would solve so many problems if we just said to everybody, go get your legal marriage. Right. Like, like we're, you do whatever you want legally and then come to the church and we can like bring you in, you know, in, and bless the marriage that way. It just seems like that would solve a lot of these tensions about, you know, who can get married or who can't get married. And I don't know. I, I think you're right with we use the same word marriage, but. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a very it's a very sticky issue, and and it's a very emotionally charged issue as well, right? Well, yeah, and I mean, I think in that scenario, uh, if we could return to that kind of original way that things are organized, I mean, the church honestly doesn't really have that much concern with how the world operates. And it it means that the church can operate in different kinds of times and places. You know, we mentioned there is a huge transformation that takes place in the thinking around marriage, you know, just in the last 100, 150 years where, 
you know, we've we've really latched onto the idea of romantic love being the basis on which marriages are built. Uh, that really isn't a whole lot of the thinking, you know, in most times and places, marriages, marriage, you know, kind of from a human sociological legal standpoint is about, you know, making sure that their society has uh, a proper vehicle for perpetuating itself, for protecting children, for protecting vulnerable. And, and often through human history, that's meant women as well, you know, that they need protected from exploitative powers and, and so forth. Um, and so this idea of giving a kind of family cornerstone to the way that society is organized was part of marriage. Marriage was about, you know, alliances and, and, and making sure that, that, you know, villages or kingdoms were united and, and so forth. Marriage was about, you know, ensuring, you know, inheritance could take place in a, in a way that was orderly, right? That there wasn't just a mad scramble for a, you know, a deceased person's, uh, you know, worldly goods and, and so forth. So marriage has all these kind of purposes, right? Well, the church can be agnostic about how society organizes it and can just simply hold a very clear, you know, moral and eschatological, you know, kingdom narrative line about what it is it's going to receive and, and, and take up, you know, so in the same way we say, you know, we're agnostic about what food you want to make, but if you make food, bread and drink wine in a particular way, that can become the stuff of the Eucharist, right? Nobody's going to bring, you know, crackers and lemonade and say, well, you know, this is what I came up with. The church quite rightly says, no, we're, we're, we deal with us. We, we make canonical guidelines for what that bread and that wine consists of. Right. So I'm trying to use this as an analogy to say, whatever you do with food, you know, we, but we, we have a particular um, requirement for the food that is taken up and, and used in this transformative sacramental meal that we call the Eucharist. Same thing. You could do whatever you want with marriage. You know, we don't have to be getting involved in petitions and, and legal proceedings to try to organize what society does with marriage, but provided that people come to the church with a particular penitential and moral uh, framework, we can say, well, that's the kind of marriage that we can now do something else with. And what is that marriage? It's a creational narrative. It's the story that goes right back to, you know, God making human beings male and female and what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, as our Lord says in the gospel. So he, Jesus overturns all history of compromise and prevaricating and equivocating around marriage that you find under the old covenant for very, you know, good reasons. That was all about, you know, the Jews not believing until very late in any kind of resurrection. Their, their legacy was their inheritance, the children. So you had to have a law that said, well, if a, if a brother dies, then his wife has to be you know, married by one of his other brothers, even if he's already married. So you get multiple, you know, polygamous marriages and, and so forth. But that was about ensuring certain things for the family, for the for the covenant community and so forth. Well, once the solid belief, at least among some of the Jews, like the Pharisees, had arisen in the resurrection, that's no longer an issue in the same way. And so our Lord, in his entering into that Jewish debate about marriage, returns to creational norms and specifically new creation and, and creational teleology. The purpose of all of this is what? Is to actually image forth this 
deep Old Testament and New Testament symbolism of God and Israel, of Christ and the church. And so in particular shapes and forms from the world, marriage can take that character on. It can represent the self-sacrificial love of God and his people. And if that's the case, the church can take that and can make that something of the kingdom. That's the decision matrix, right? So it doesn't matter if the world says that, you know, people can marry donkeys, fine, who cares? You know, you can even call that a legal marriage, but we are not going to take that and turn that into the thing which represents God and Israel, Christ and his bride, the church, right? It, that takes particular shapes and forms. So the clarity around working through these things, I think is, is really important. And it's only, it can only be based on an understanding that, that marriage is a human given, but that particular forms of that can be transformed into something of the kingdom. You've just finished listening to another public episode of Enacting the Kingdom. If you're getting value from this podcast and you'd like to support the show, you can head over to pryingpriest.com to become a patron. Also, five-star ratings with written reviews go a long way to getting the word out there about this show. Also, since Enacting the Kingdom is social media free, any word of mouth recommendations you can make to your friends and family would be greatly appreciated. We'll see you next time.